Salutations, listeners. You are listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. And it is our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. In this episode, we are going to be taking a fun turn. So don't necessarily, um, you know, think that this is going to be full of like very hardcore serious jazz. That's, you know, sometimes what we like to focus on, but not this episode. For this episode, we are going to be spotlighting something that does not get a lot of attention, especially in the jazz world. And that is Jug and Washboard Bands. That's right. And I know what you're saying. If you're one of those, you know, very straight ahead kind of jazz listeners, you're going, Dr. Jazz, what does this have to do with anything jazz related? With a bunch of guys blowing in jugs and, you know, washing washboards. What's up with that? Well, stick around and I will tell you because it actually has a whole lot to do with jazz music. And it's just fun. On top of that, it's just fun to hear the rhythms coming off those washboards. And it, it's just fun to hear, you know, some of those little jug bass lines. And, yeah, that's what we're here to provide. It's just some kind of thing that's not your ordinary jazz listening experience. So, whether that's John Zorn, Lee Morgan, New Orleans music, or jug bands, we cover it all. So... Sit back, relax, grab your own special jug of whatever, (laughs) and be prepared to listen to some history and some good old-time fun sounds from jug and washboard bands, which is our focus here on this episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. So thank you for listening. We couldn't be anything without you. We, we treasure your support, and we thank you from the very, very bottom of our hearts. Without you, we're nothing. So, let's get to the music. Jug and Washboard Bands. Enjoy. I went hunting in the woods. Had my gun like a hunter's gun. Jumped the bear, but it was my kind. Left my baby way behind. Long felt teeth. Without the wall. 
So let's delve into some of this here. <clears throat> um, the first track that we heard there was a tune called Folding Bed, which is more, it's one of the more well-known jug band tunes, and it's by Whistler and his jug band. And the second tune that we heard was Traveling Blues, and that was by none other than Ma Rainey. And uh, for those of you who are somewhat up to date, you know what I mean, on old, you know, blues artists, uh, you probably saw Viola Davis in um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So, uh, you know, playing the part of Ma Rainey. But Ma Rainey was also the one who gave Bessie Smith her start. And... um, but besides being famous for for all of those things and being one of the first female blues artists to really make her own rules and and you know do her call her own shots, uh, she recorded a couple of sides with the Tub Jug Washboard Band, and it's okay if you don't know these names. That's what we're here for is to kind of help educate you. You know what I mean. And let you know that there was some kind of cool stuff going on and uh, who that was. So, yeah. So the second track was Traveling Blues by the great Ma Rainey with the Tub Jug Washboard Band. 
Now, that last tune that we heard was Cocaine Habit Blues. That's right. Way before Eric Clapton, you know, singing songs about it, there was the Memphis Jug Band. That's right. It's no lie. It's no lie. It's no lie. It's the Memphis Jug Band. So, um, yeah, so let's talk about a little bit of this. I'm not just going to just, you know, like play a, a bunch. With this episode, I'm not going to play just a bunch of songs and tell you who it was. You know what I mean? So let's delve into some of the history of it here. So Brenda Bogert uh, wrote uh, some liner notes for the four volumes of the uh, Louisville Jug Band's uh, CD series on RST Records. And this is what she had to say. Louisville, Kentucky is known throughout the world as the home of the Kentucky Derby. Giddy up. Few people realize that it is also the birthplace of a unique style of music. If you had been to a participant in Derby Week activities during the 1920s, you would have undoubtedly heard the sounds of Louisville's contribution to musical history. The Jug Bands. Brass bands and string bands had been a fixture of Louisville's African-American community since the 1860s. But out of this rich environment came the earliest jug band musicians. The first bands were performing around 1900. So the idea of the jug band, just kind of to pause Ms. Bogert's words here for a second, the first kind of couple of jug bands date back to 1900. That's about the same time as jazz music. Because considering that it was 1918 that the very first jazz record was recorded with the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Now, I understand that it, you know, was being played before that because even Buddy Bolden, you know, is often, you know, looked on as the first jazz musician to kind of make up his own melodies and solo and take solos over, you know, rags and marching tunes. You know, he was doing that in the 1890s. So about 1900, it, it, we're on similar trajectories here, you know. So keep that in mind, except that was down in New Orleans, and this was in Louisville, Kentucky. So Michael L. Jones uh, wrote in the Louisville Jug Music from Earl MacDonald to the National Jubilee, he says, Mr. Jones says, Memphis bands, being close to the Mississippi Delta, developed a sound akin to the country blues. Louisville, <clears throat> Louisville jug bands were influenced by the New Orleans jazz arriving by riverboat at the Louisville Wharf. <clears throat> now, these were not your average street groups. They actually included jazz instrumentation like the saxophone, the clarinet, and piano, along with the usual string band instruments and the jug. For this reason, Louisville jug music stands out as unique. Louisville produced the first jug band to record in the studio. In September 1924, four members of the Louisville Jug Band, Earl MacDonald on jug, Clifford Hayes on violin, Curtis Hayes on guitar, and Cal Smith on the banjo, went into the studio backing the singer Sarah Martin on ten sides. So, let me pause right there. 
Sarah Martin also gave, well, all right, hold on. Let me back up one more step. So let, let's talk about that instrumentation thing. So first of all, Louisville jug bands were influenced by New Orleans jazz at that time through the riverboats and the wharfs, right? And they included instruments like saxophones, clarinets, pianos, just like New Orleans jazz musicians did. So that's the first correlation to show that this is this was, you know, kind of an inspiration influencing each other. There was a lot of blues sharing going on and instrumental sharing uh, going on. The similar sounds in two different camps and then they kind of melded as one for a lot of these early sounds, which is really cool. Now, g getting back to the other point I was going to make, Sarah Martin that may, name might not ring a bell to you. But Sarah Martin had her own jug band, and she eventually gave a young pianist and composer and singer and organist his start. And that kid that she gave a start to would be none other than Thomas Waller. Of course, the world knows him much better as Fats Waller. That's right, the Fats Waller, the guy who wrote Ain't Misbehavin' and, you know, all, all, so many legendary jazz standards. Honeysuckle Rose, you know, I mean, just tons of great songs. Um, in fact, he would be a great spotlight artist. Keep that one in the memory bank. But, so th that's the point, is that, you know, Fats Waller, if he, he would have lived long enough, would have been just, I, I believe, honestly, just as an important and famous composer as Ellington. And I know that's a bold statement, but you got to understand, you got to believe me. With songs like Black and Blue and all these other things, I mean, you got to understand, Louis Armstrong dedicated an entire album to playing nothing but Fats Waller music. So if it's good enough for Satch, it's good enough for me, you know. <clears throat> so that being said, the nexus of musicians who made up the Louisville Jug Band would wind up dispersing and recording for different labels under different names. And we're going to be talking about a lot of those as we go along. But now, let's break down real quick kind of what we heard. Okay, so the first tune that we heard was Foldin' Bed. And that came from Whistler's, Whistler's Jug Band. Now, here's a little backstory about or, or info back info about Whistler because that doesn't give a lot of info right it's like some guy named Whistler I don't know Dr. Jazz is talking about right so but check it out so one of the many many African-American jug bands that flourished in the Louisville area which we just talked about in the 1920s and 1930s was Whistler's Jug Band and it was led by guitarist and novelty player Buford Threlkeld so if your name was Buford Threlkeld, you'd probably go by Whistler too. And he was the this guitarist, you know, Whistler, led these bands uh, on distinctive several accounts. His band was the first band of its type to record starting in 1924, and it featured a ragtime and jazz repertoire that predated the later blues favored by groups like the Memphis Jug Band. Whistler's Jug Band became pioneers in preserving their music on film when they did a number for the Fox 
Movie Tone Newsreel in May 1930. And that tune that was featured on the newsreel, you guessed it, Fold in Bed, what we started off the whole podcast with. Whistler's regular banjo player, Willie Black, is heard here, but the other members, unfortunately, are unknown. So, we only got two members that we know of from Whistler's Jug Band, but we actually got Whistler's real name and the significance of why we heard Fold in Bed. Okay? <clears throat> then, as I said before, we heard Ma Rainey and the Tub Jug Washboard Band with Traveling Blues and let's see. Yes, and then we heard the Memphis Jug Band. Now, the Memphis Jug Band, despite um, what that last little blurb said, was an American musical group active again in the mid-1920s all the way through the late 1950s, if you can believe that. I mean, that's past the, the beginning of rock and roll. And the band featured harmonica, kazoo, fiddle, and mandolin or banjolin, backed by guitar, piano, washboard, washtub bass, and jugs. They played slow blues, they played pop songs, they played humorous songs, and they played upbeat dance numbers with jazz and string band flavors. They made their first commercial recordings in, you guessed it, Memphis, Tennessee, and recorded more sides than any other pre-war jug band. So beginning in 1926, African-American musicians in the Memphis area grouped around the singer, songwriter, guitarist, and harmonica player, Will Shade. Of course, he was better known as Sun Bremer, or Sun Bremer, S-O-N or S-U-N, right? Um, the personnel of the band varied from day to day, with Sun Bremer booking gigs and arranging recording sessions. The band was a training ground for musicians who would go on to make careers of their own. So, among the recorded members of the Memphis Joke Bands at various times were, of course, Will Shade, who was known as Sun Bremer, on harmonica, guitar, washed-up bass and vocals, but also Charlie Burse, Charlie Nickerson, Charlie Pierce, Charlie Polk, all the, all the Charlies, Tiwi Blackman, Hambone Lewis, Jab Jones, Johnny Harge, Ben Ramey, Will Weldon, Memphis Minnie, that's right, on guitar and on vocals, Val Stevens, Milton Roby, Otto Gilmore, Robert Burse, and vocals were also sometimes provided by Hattie Hart and Ginny Mae Clayton, as well as Minnie Wallace. The Memphis Jug Band accompanied Memphis Minnie on two sides for Victor Records in 1930 for one of her first recording sessions. Some members also contributed to the gospel recordings, either uncredited or as part of the Memphis Sanctified Singers. The large membership pool gave the Memphis Jug Band flexibility to play a mixture of ballads, dance tunes, knockabout novelty numbers, and blues. So, the Memphis, the remarkable thing, the remarkable sound of 
the Memphis Jug Band was partly due to its unusual instruments. The first recorded jug bands, which we talked about earlier, record, based in Louisville, Kentucky, were jazz-oriented groups with a jug taking the place of a tuba or trombone. The Memphis Jug Band borrowed this model but added kazoo as a prominent lead instrument, similar in sound to a trumpet in a jazz band. Another variation from the Louisville sound was a focus on country blues songs, like those favored by Jim Jackson and other Memphis-area solo artists. This is the basic jug band sound that was adopted by other Memphis-area groups like Gus Cannon's Jug Stompers, Jed Davenport's Bill Street Jug Band, and Jack Kelly's South Memphis Jug Band. The band initially played mostly country blues, but its repertoire expanded as new members contributed their own styles. Songs led by Charlie Bozo Nickerson, such as Everybody's Talking About Sadie Green and Caveman Blues, were boisterous and funny. Songs led by Charlie Burse, such as Little Green Slippers and Insane Crazy Blues, were more musically complex and jazz-oriented. Songs led by Charlie Pierce sounded like Appalachian fiddle tunes, backed by impressive jug playing and shouted challenges from his bandmates. Will Shade, a.k.a. Sunbremer, continued to play playing straightforward country blues songs for the rest of his life, but he also introduced some jazz elements, as in his 1962 field recording of Jumpin' Jive which incorporates lyrics from Cab Calloway's Jumpin' Jive. The blues scholar Paul Oliver noted that the raspy buzzing sound of some of the jug band instruments was close to the musical aesthetic of Africa and that the jug and kazoo represented the voices of animals or ancestral spirits. How's that for deep on you? However, Many of the Memphis Jug Band's influences are more readily apparent in popular music styles of their time. Now, the, the Memphis Jug Band could find, you know, played engagements and parties and, and gigs wherever they could, and they also busked in local parks and different markets. They were popular with both white and black audiences, <clears throat> playing at country clubs and even parties at the legendary Peabody Hotel. The band was a favor, favorite of former mayor Boss Crump and was shown performing at one of Crump's parties in a Life magazine photo spread in 1941. All right. So, that gives you a little backstory on Whistler and his jug band Ma Rainey, which we talked about, and right there, the Memphis Jug Band. So, you understand now, even just in that first set, that there are threads within this musical tapestry that deal with early jazz. And why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about jug bands? Why are we talking about washboard bands and its relation to jazz music? Well, I'm a firm believer that you have to understand, if you love a music... You have to understand where it came from before you understand where it's going. So, there you go.
Anyway, if you're trying to write a bunch of these names down or stuff like that, don't worry. We have got you covered. All you have to do is go to our website, Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z podcast.wordpress.com. And there you can find all the artists' names, the tracks in the order in which they're played, and the album artwork so you know exactly what to go looking for, hopefully in your local record shop. Support local if you can. All right. Uh, yeah, and if you'd like to, at the top of the page, you can click Contact, and it will take you to a, a little box where you can write an email that will come directly to us here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and we will write you back. So, enough talking for me. Let's get to another great set of music here on this Jug and Washboard Band edition of the Dr. Jazz Podcast.
it almost turned me white. I dreamt that hens that roosters rolled on trees. I dreamt I owned a great big ranch on every hen tree branch. The egg was just as thick as bumblebee. I stepped out in the yard and shook one tree right hard and about 100 pounds come tumbling down. Just as soon as they had died, I had them quickly fried with the gravy oozing out all nice and bright. It was under the chicken tree, under the big breaker tree. It was dropping from every blossom. I lost all my taste for the meat they called possum. Hound, hog, it was a thing. Look like there's a chicken and wing.
So in that set, the first thing we started out with was Hatchet Head Blues. Yep, you heard that right. From the old Southern Jug Band. Yep. And then, in the middle of the set, we heard Under the Chicken Tree by Earl McDonald's original Louisville Jug Band. And then, <clears throat> to end the set, we heard Banjerino by the Dixieland Jug Blowers. So, um, a couple of things to keep in mind there. Um, so, with the every what uh, with the under the chicken tree track, we heard kind of like this little banter back and forth at the end, <clears throat> and it's almost like it was a not just a song, but also like a little skit. There was like a little joke at the end, and that I'm sure favored well with people buying records and things like that because it was a way for communication. Uh, it was a way to kind of sympathize with each other th through the communication. Equated to kind of like, oh, did you see that play in that game? Or did you hear what so-and-so said on Saturday Night Live? Or, you know what I mean? Or did you see that skit? It's the same sort of thing. It was a way to, you know, um, bond with other folks, you know, who enjoyed the same kind of music you did. So if you were somebody who bought a lot of, like, um, jug band music, specifically Louisville jug band music, then, you know, you could... Uh, you know, you could you, you could have this bond with each other. Uh, a little bit about Earl McDonald there. Um, speaking of the one that we were, were just talking about under the chicken tree there. Earl McDonald, um, he did not have a farm. Earl McDonald was an American singer and jug blower noted as a pioneer in creating and recording jug band music. He was born in Louisville, Kentucky. And he formed his first jug band in 1902 and toured widely, performing in New York City and Chicago by 1914. So let's put this in chronological order. Earl McDonald was born and bred in Louisville, Kentucky, formed his first band in 1902, and by 1914 he was playing in New York and Chicago for years before the first jazz record was ever recorded onto wax by the original Dixieland Jazz Band. Keep that in mind, as far as chronologically, right? So later he established the original Louisville Jug Band, that's who we heard right there with Under the Chicken Tree, and the Old Southern Jet Jug Band, right? Now, in case that sounded slightly familiar, the first track that we heard in that set, Hatchet Head Blues, was by, you guessed it, the Old Southern Jug Band. It's Earl McDonald again. You thought I skipped one, didn't you? No, they all tie together. There's a method to my madness. So, he not only led the original Louisville Jug Band, but he also led the Old Southern Jug Band. There you go. Um, <clears throat> which, here's tying the threads together. The Old Southern Jug Band, recorded in 1924 with singer, are you ready, Sarah Martin, the same one that I just told you that gave a young Fats Waller his start. 
and the fiddle player Clifford Hayes. Joining with Hayes to form the Dixieland Jug Blowers for recordings. So one was like a touring group, which would have been the original Louisville Jug Band. And one was just like a studio group, the old Southern Jug Band. Now, equate that to if the Beatles would have had, you know, their touring band that went out and sang like Help and, you know, She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they would have had their studio band, which was doing Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane. But they called it something else, not just the same band. Essentially, that's what was going on. So that's kind of cool. It also would give the impetus and the uh, plant the seed for the idea for a young Louis Armstrong to go and play with Fletcher Henderson's orchestra and Louis Russell's orchestra and all these other things like that. And then also have a little studio band called the Hot Fives and the Hot Sevens that never really toured. They just stayed in the studio and recorded amazing works. So this is, yeah. But this predates all those. So keep that in mind. Now, in the 1920s and early 30s, he performed regularly regularly with his band, another band, the Ballard, Chi- the Ballard Chefs, on the radio station WHAS, helping to popularize jug band music, and he made over 40 recordings. Now... <clears throat> Sadly, Earl MacDonald passed away in Louisville in 1949 and was buried in an unmarked grave. A gravestone was later provided in 2009. So, like 60 years later, at the instigation of supporters of the annual Jug Band Jubilee. There you go. Yes. So, that was, yeah, so that kind of tied up the the um, the loose ends there for the old Southern Jug Band and the Earl McDonald's original Louisville Jug Band. Now, the last tune that we heard in that set was a tune called Banjarino. And I absolutely love that tune because it's got this really percussive banjo going on and then right behind it you've got this really active jug bass line sort of thing going on and it's just happy fun crazy sound and music and that was performed by the Dixieland Jug Blowers now here's a little backstory or info on the Dixieland Jug Blowers the Dixieland Jug Blowers were a popular American musical group of the 1920s That group was a jug band, incorporating the usual jug, banjo, guitar, and fiddle, but it was also considered as a jazz band due to its use of alto sax, trumpet, or I'm sorry, trombone, piano, and clarinet, played by Johnny Dodds. With this wide variety of instruments, the Dixieland Jug Blowers became the most sophisticated of its time and influenced other jug bands of the time, such as the Memphis Jug Band, which we heard in the first set. The Dixieland Jug Band was created by commingling of two separate groups run by jug player Earl MacDonald 
and Fiddler Clifford Hayes. That's right, the same Earl MacDonald that we were just talking about two songs ago. They were brought together in 1926 for a Victor Records recording session in Chicago, Illinois, and again in 1927. Earl MacDonald had been a musician for almost 30 years at this point and favored the earlier traditional and minstrel tunes. Clifford Hayes, on the other hand, favored a more straight-ahead jazz-style approach, eventually dispensing with the jug altogether. So, let's talk about this just for a quick second. I mentioned the name Johnny Dodds. Johnny Dodds, for those of you who don't know, was not only a clarinetist in King Oliver's Creole jazz band with Louis Armstrong and King Oliver, but he was part of the infamous Hot Five and Hot Seven groups of the young Louis Armstrong. Remember I was just talking about the, the great studio band? Johnny Dodds was the clarinet in that in those studio bands. That super group, if you will, with Louis Armstrong and Kid Ory and Lil Harden and, you know, <clears throat> his brother Baby Dodds. And of course the great Louis Armstrong on trumpet and vocals. So this is a heavy thread that connects the jug and washboard world with the jazz world right here. Now, why did I choose the tune Banjarino? Just because I like the banjo and the jug blowing? Well, yeah, mainly. But also, here's a little fun fact about that, that particular song. The Dixieland Jug Blower's recording of Banjarino was used by animator Terry Gilliam in his Brian Islam and Brucey segment for the BBC comedy series Monty Python's Flying Circus. So, there you go. For those Monty Python fans out there, you thought it was just a regular banjo tune, didn't you? You thought it was all cute. No, but no. It's a real deal tune. So there you go. Um, Yeah. So, cool things are happening in the jug and the washboard world. We're we're seeing connecting threads not only with cool jazz stuff, but even with Monty Python. So, who knew? We knew, and that's why we're sharing it with you. All right, enough talking from us. Let's get back to some more great jug and washboard band music here on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Thank you. 
mama, mama, run ya and look at them. Mama, mama, run ya and look at them. He's done ate up all the meat, babe, and he's looking out to fry in vain. Say now that big fat mama with the meat shaking on her bone. Oh, that big fat mama with the meat shaking on her bone. Every time she shakes the shimmy, she makes her daddy leave his home. Now that mailman passed, but he did not leave no news. And that mailman passed, but he did not leave no news. And he left me a babe with that golf course blue. Thank <laughs> you. 
tunes in that set the first song that we heard was a tune called everybody wants my toodle on and i think you can infer what all that means uh but it was by clifford hayes and yet again we have mentioned that name before so and it was with clifford hayes's louisville stompers now remember, Clifford Hayes is one of the ones that was working hand-in-hand hand with Earl McDonald, right? Who we really highlighted in the, the, the previous set of music. But Clifford Hayes was born in 1893 and was an African-American multi-instrumentalist and band leader who recorded jug band music and jazz in the 1920s and 30s. Notably, as the leader of the Dixieland Jug Blowers, Clifford's Louisville Jug Band, and Hayes's Louisville Stompers. His main instrument was the violin. And even though his main instrument was the violin, he made, uh, he actually played piano and saxophone in addition to the violin. Now, let's pause right here for a quick second. If you'll recall what I said previously about the sets with Earl McDonald, there was some of them that said that <clears throat> they wanted to stay more along the country blues style of songs. There was some of them that wanted to be more Appalachian in flavor. And there's other, so mountain songs. And then there's other ones who wanted to be much more progressive and jazz-inspired uh, with their uh, sophisticated harmonies with their jug music. Well, that one was Clifford Hayes. And it's no doubt that the saxophone player who also played piano and violin was the one who wanted to kind of breach into more sophisticated harmonies. So, putting that out there. Uh, he made, talking about Clifford Hayes here, he made his first recordings in 1924 accompanying the singer Sarah Martin, who we've mentioned before, who gave Fats Waller his start, as part of the old Southern Jug Band with Jug Virtuoso Earl McDonald. The following year, Clifford Hayes recorded for OK Records as the leader of Clifford's Louisville Jug Band. And over the next few years, recorded in Chicago with clarinetist Johnny Dodds in the Dixieland Jug Blowers, who we just previously talked about in the last set. 
He also led Hayes' Louisville Stompers, who recorded between 1927 and 1929, with the pianist Earl Hines on some tracks. Hmm. Earl Father Hines? You bet. The exact same Earl Hines. The same Earl Hines that when he played with Louis Armstrong developed what they call trumpet technique on the piano. That's right, where you basically take your left hand on the piano and you comp chords as the time is going by in a song, and then you take your right hand and you just solo with it. And they call that trumpet-style piano. Now, that same style of jazz piano playing is being used today. Where you comp in the left hand and you solo with the right. Bill Evans used it that way. I mean, everybody started playing jazz piano like that after Earl Hines. So, Earl Hines is truly a pioneer of jazz piano, and even Earl Hines recorded with jug bands like and jug musicians like Clifford Hayes. So that's very important to note. All right. After the song that we heard, Everybody Wants My Tootalum, we heard Gulf Coast Blues by the Alabama Jug Band. Now what does the Alabama Jug Band have to do with jazz music and the price of tea in China? Well, I'll tell you. The Alabama Jug Band consists of Banjo Ike Robinson, who was a very forward-thinking and um, jazz-inspired banjoist, along with Cecil Scott on clarinet, Ed Allen on cornet, Dick Fulbright on the double bass, Clarence Williams playing the jug, and Floyd Casey playing the washboard, and on piano, the one and only Willie the Lion Smith. That's right, the same Willie the Lion Smith that was known as one of the masters of Harlem-style stride piano, along with James B. Johnson and Fats Waller. Uh, Lucky Roberts, but yeah, Willie the Lion is definitely one of the biggest names and composers for Harlem Stride Piano. And Clarence, Willa, Clarence Williams is no slouch either, although he was only playing the actual jug part to this. He actually wrote the tune, Gulf Coast Blues, and by the way, the vocals were by Hambone Jackson. Uh, but Clarence Williams was um, an institution into himself. <laughs> um, man, oh man, where do we begin here? So he was actually born in Plaquemine, Louisiana, right? Um, and as, you know, he, he was a good businessman, um, and he was also a piano player and a composer, and he was writing tunes by 1913. He was born in October of 1893, but by 1913 he was already playing piano and writing tunes. And he was a good businessman and a good arranger. And um, he was a 
he was good at managing entertainment. And so um, he was kind of around the, the Storyville district in New Orleans. And anyway, in 1915, he started a music publishing business with the violinist and band leader Armand J. Perron, which by the 1920s was the leading African-American-owned music publisher in the entire United States. He toured briefly with W.C. Handy. He set up a publishing office in Chicago. Then he went to New York in the early 1920s, married the blues singer Eva Taylor, and they lived up there. He was one of the primary pianists on tons of blues records recorded in New York in the 1920s. He supervised uh, African-American recordings for the OK Phonograph Company. Now, the OK Record Company is the same ones that recorded a young Duke Ellington and his orchestra. So, he, he mostly used Clarence Williams Jazz Kings for his hot jazz band sides and Clarence Williams Washboard 5 for his washboard sides. He has also produced and participated in early recordings by Louis Armstrong, Sidney Bechet, Bessie Smith, Virginia Liston, Iring Scruggs, and his niece, Catherine Henderson. Two of his 1924 recording bands, the Red Onion Jazz Babies and the Clarence Williams Blue Five, actually featured Louis Armstrong on cornet and Sidney Bechet on soprano saxophone together. Two of arguably the most important early jazz soloists. And their only recordings together before the 1940s. The Clarence Williams Blue Five was a studio band only. There's that term again. Was a studio band only formed after the success of King Oliver's recordings. The rivalry between Louis Armstrong and Sidney Bechet, who tried to outdo each other with successive solo breaks, is exemplified in Cakewalk and Babies from Home, which some of us know all about that. I'm not going to get too deep into that. But the crazy part is this guy wrote amazing songs on top of being a great jug player, a great businessman, a great music publisher, a great pianist. He also wrote so many classic songs that we just take for granted, like The Bucket's Got a Hole in It, Need a Little Sugar in My Bowl, which was made famous by Bessie Smith and Nina Simone. Um, what is it? Shout, Sister Shout. Taint Nobody's Business If I Do, which was a great you know, song uh, recording by Billie Holiday and Bessie Smith. Royal Garden Blues that every Dixieland band and big band player like Tommy Dorsey recorded. Baby, Won't You Please Come Home. The Sugar Blues. I ain't going to give none of, I ain't going to give nobody none of this jelly roll. And I Wish I Could Shimmy Like My Sister Kate. All these great songs are traced back to Clarence Williams. And if you are a fan of old TV shows like The Mod Squad, then you might remember Clarence Williams III. And that would be the grandson of this Clarence Williams. So, there you go. 
What does it have? What does jug bands and washboard bands have to do with jazz? Just about everything in the early stages of it. <laughs> yeah, killer stuff. All right, now <clears throat> the next thing that we heard was the or the last song in that um, set was "What's That Taste Like Gravy," and that was by none other than King David's jug band and uh, the crazy part about that well there's a lot of interesting little things but um, the most impressive thing about that particular song one of the most impressive things is the the stovepipe that they're actually playing which is being played by Samuel Jones right um and it's from what they call stovepipe number one. And during every break of that song, What's That Taste Like Gravy? It sounds like a kazoo. But what it is, is it's actually a stovepipe that he's breathing into the way that you would like a jug band. Now, let me take this opportunity real quick to say this too. When we're saying like, how are these people making these kind of bass sounds and these kazoo sounds with these jugs. Well, equate it to having a, an empty two liter, three liter, uh, one liter, you know, any kind of empty bottle. And you know, you're just going like, you know, with your breath over the top until it resonates, the air swishes and sloshes through that empty container until it makes this very resonant, hollow, like hum, right? Well, that's what they're doing, but in a very musical way and with, attacked breath, shortened breath, you know what I mean? And to do this with these whiskey jugs, these brown jugs of various sizes uh, and pitches, not to mention stovepipes, like what we heard with What's That Taste Like Gravy? It's just, it boggles the mind. It takes something that's a very kid-like in nature and makes it into something deeper, crazier, musical, almost sophisticated. And that's the, the, the blending, the alchemy, if you will, of these crazy things together. So there you have it. Now, here's the other thing. Um, besides that, King David of King David's Joe Band is probably a guy named David Crockett. No, I don't think it's Davy. Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. But David Crockett uh, recorded several duets with Samuel Jones. And what's the crazy part is that there's scat singing in that song. Yeah. Yeah. So there is scat singing of like right so he's actually scatting in that song which is just mind-blowing right on top of that for those of you who enjoy old blues records you know and I do from time to time you might recall there's a song by the great Robert Johnson on those old vocalion records and there's a tune uh my brother hit me to it and it's a, a long time ago and it's called they're red hot and it's also known as the hot tamale song right hot tamales and the red hot yes she's got them for sale 
that exact same chord sequence seems to be a, a copy-paste for this song that we just heard. What's that taste like gravy? They almost sound identical. In fact, the breaks are almost the same kind of hits where it does the little walk-down thing. So do yourselves a favor. If you want to hear another great, great song that's not a jug or washboard song, just a great old blues song, go look up Robert Johnson. They're there, meaning spelled T-H-E-Y apostrophe R-E. There, red hot. And you'll see or hear exactly what I'm talking about. And it's a great song. So there you go. All right. Remember, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, BeanPod, uh, or now even Amazon Podcasts. Uh, so please, if there's someone you know that might dig this kind of sort of thing, please pass it on to them. We love having as many new listeners as possible. On top of that, if you've got a little extra second, we would love to. Uh, a positive review we keep on inching so close to that perfect 5.0 on apple Podcasts. so if you've got a quick minute to write a positive review we would sure appreciate it also remember that you can find all of this track information artwork albums um, for the albums all this stuff on our website so you don't have to jot it down it's all there in the order in which it's played and that website is Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast.wordpress.com. Okay. And if you'd like to write to us up at the top of that page, you just click contact and it'll shoot us an email and we will write you back. And we love hearing from our listeners. So thank you, Daniel, and a couple other people who have written in. We certainly do appreciate you. Can't do it without you. Thanks. All right. Enough of me talking. Let's we've got yeah, we got another set of music. So, <laughs> and there's quite some cool surprises. So, stick around. Don't go anywhere. You are listening to the Jug and Washboard Band edition of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. <laughs>
That's a wonderful, wonderful little set of tunes. All right. So we started off that set with a tune called Bucktown Stomp. And that was by none other than Johnny Dodd's Washboard Band. So we have dropped Johnny Dodd's name, the great jazz clarinet player that played with King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band and Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven. We've dropped that name throughout this podcast, but now this is the point where Johnny Dodds has his own washboard band. So what is a washboard? Well, that's that little metal thing that you actually used to wash your clothes with, and you see it you know, uh, sometimes in Zydeco bands, even to this day. But they usually take spoons or a nail, and it creates this, like, ripple, like, um, vibrating kind of zit sound. You know what I mean? And a zit And it's a type of percussive percussion instrument that was used and was the feature of so many of these kind of bands. Well, Johnny Dodds decided that he wanted to get up his own washboard band and thus named it with his own, you know, name. And had great success with it, by the way. And with that, he got on board quite a number of early jazz superstars. So, on the bass, Bill Johnson. On the trombone, Honoré Dutre. On the piano, none other than Lil Hardin Armstrong. And all these people were part of either the King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band or Louis Armstrong's Hot Five, Hot Seven group. Until we get to Natty Dominique, who is quite a sensational uh, cornet player in his own right until, you know, his his health kind of took a turn. But Baby Dodds, Johnny Dodds' brother, the great drummer, was on washboards for this in addition to Johnny Johnny Dodds on the clarinet. So, and he plays one hell of some blues whales on that thing. I mean, there's plenty of these, you know, sort of like bluesy fall sort of things, which was pretty revolutionary for that time. You know, that's one of the reasons that Johnny Dodds was like the man on the clarinet back in that day, you know. And that's one of the reasons that King Oliver wanted him and Louis Armstrong wanted him. And they, there you go. So essentially, it's like a super group without Louis Armstrong in the group. And that's what Johnny Dodd's washboard band was. So there you go. Uh, In the middle of that set, we heard a tune called Washboard Wiggles. And that was uh, by none other than Tiny Parham and his musicians. Now, you got to understand that, let's see when this actually was recorded. What year here? Uh, Tiny Parham, by the way. Yeah, it was recorded in, oh, it doesn't say. It says unknown. So it could have, well, there you go. More than likely, we are probably looking at, uh, I would guess... 
the mid 30s is what I would guess. Yeah, mid 1930s. Um, it could be late 20s, like 1929. That's what I'm going to guess is like 1929 because it comes off the chronological classics here. I was trying to look up uh, shellac info on that record. But Tiny Parham was a musician uh, who was born in Canada, grew up in Kansas City, and he had a, a, a hell of a group of musicians called just his musicians, you know. And at this band that we heard on Washboard Wiggles includes Charles Johnson, Charles Lawson, Dalbert Bright, Elliot Washington, Ernie Marrero, Ike Covington, Mike McKendrick, Quinn Wilson, Roy Hobson, Tommy Brookins, of course, Tiny Parham, because he's the leader, the one and only Punch Miller on the trumpet, and the judge himself on bass, Milt Hinton. That's right. This dates back to even before when Milton Hinton was playing with Cab Calloway and Dizzy Gillespie and before he became the, the giant that he has known, you know, in, in jazz circles and jazz history. We're talking about Milt Hinton, the same guy who played with Brantford Marsalis on some of his recordings. And Cab Calloway is right here with Tiny Parham recording a washboard tune from like probably 1929, 1930. So, yeah. How important is Milt Hinton to jazz? He's known as the judge. So, that's what washboard bands and jug bands have to do with jazz. Is that those are a lot, there are a lot more intersecting lines than meets the eye or ear in that matter, right? Which is a great segue into our last song that we heard, which was I'm Going Hunting. You want to talk about tying loose ends together? Check this out. It's a tune called I'm Going Hunting by Jimmy Bertrand's Washboard Wizards. Now, here you go. Who was in the Washboard Wizards? <laughs> Yeah. By the way, it was recorded May 28, 1927 for Vocalion Records in Chicago, Illinois. And in that band, the Washboard Wizards, uh, Jimmy Bertrand, the leader, was playing washboards and wooden blocks. On clarinet, Juni Cobb, who had his own great blues band in Chicago. Johnny Dodds, yet again, on the clarinet. The great Jimmy Blythe on piano. Natty Dominique, there's that name again, who is the cornetist for Johnny Dodd's washboard group. Washboard band, right? And then on lead cornet for Jimmy Bertrand's Washboard Wizards, the one and only Louis Armstrong. Not finished. Here we go. You want to know who wrote that, that song, I'm Going Hunting? Two guys, J.C. Johnson and Thomas Waller. That's right, Fats Waller. Fats Waller co-wrote that tune that Louis Armstrong, Jimmy Blythe, Junie Cobb, Natty Dominique, Johnny Dodds, and Jimmy Bertrand recorded in 1927. And that probably wouldn't have happened had Sarah Martin, who had her own jug band, 
not taking a chance and giving a job to a young keyboard player named Thomas Waller. That's Waller. So everything goes together. Now, we are in the month of February. And as y'all know, I am a super big fan of Mardi Gras and all things New Orleans culture. So I'm giving you a lanyard on this podcast. What is a lanyard? Well, it's a little extra something, something, right? So we have one last set for you. And it is by, well, it, it has got some of what I consider the most jazzful washboard music around. So please stick around. We got three more great tunes, one last great set coming at you. Don't go anywhere. And thank you so much for listening to the Dr. Jazz Podcast. <laughs>
But babe, love my baby, but my baby don't love nobody but me, nobody but me. Now babe, everybody wants my baby, but my baby don't want nobody but me. Oh, plain as can see, oh baby, that little old damn bum, we need the bum, no. Da 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 Everybody love me, but babe don't love nobody but me. Nobody but me. Can't get enough of blue drag 
Oh, you got my soul on fire I know that I'll never tire Of that low-down blue drive Three fantastic, jazzy washboard tracks. So the first song that we heard right there was a tune called Pepper Steak by the Alabama Washboard Stompers. Then it was followed by the early jazz standard, Everybody Loves My Baby. Followed by, and that was by, Everybody Loves My Baby was by the Georgia Washboard Stompers. And then we ended with one of my absolute favorite washboard tunes of all time. It's a tune called Blue Drag. Not to be confused with Django Reinhardt's Blue Drag, a totally different song. But this Blue Drag swings. And it is by the Washboard Rhythm Kings. Now, the crazy part about that is that all three bands are the same people. That's right. The Washboard Rhythm Kings, who was one of the swingingest washboard bands around, was also known as the Washboard Rhythm Boys, the Georgia Washboard Stompers, the Alabama Washboard Stompers, the Washboard Rhythm Band, and the Chicago Hot Five, who basically were this loose aggregation of jazz performers, many of very high caliber, which I can second to that, who recorded as a group for various labels between 1930 and 1935. Bruce Johnson played the washboard. Occasionally, kazoo. And this is around the time of the Great Depression. So they mostly just covered hits from all the other artists. Now, the personnel varied considerably, but guitarist Teddy Bunn, was part of that group, trumpeter Valida Snow, trumpeter Taft Jordan, Leo Watson, Steve Washington, uh, were both vocalists, uh, clarinetist Ben Smith, a lot of great cats came through and recorded with the Washboard Rhythm Kings or whatever aggregation that they were. 
So you can also catch uh, the Washboard Serenaders, which is the same group, in short films like That's the Spirit from 1933, Carnival Time from 1936, and The Black Network from 1936. So hopefully, yeah, you dug those as much as I do because I love some Washboard Rhythm Kings. So that's the show. Thank you so, 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 so much for um, st- sticking with us and listening to some great jug band music, some washboard band music. Um, hopefully you see how this crisscrosses and ties into the development of jazz and all the music that we love so dearly. And it's just fun to listen to. So, um, In the famous words of Duke Ellington, you are wonderful, you are gracious, and we do love you madly. Remember, you can find the Dr. Jazz Podcast wherever you find your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, or Amazon Podcasts. We are there. So spread the word, if you can, to someone who would enjoy this. Remember, we're not making a dime off this, so it's truly a labor of love on our part. We actually have to pay to upload this these podcasts. So, And remember, if you are looking for information on our tracks, just go to our website, Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z-Podcast.wordpress.com. And there you can find out information and track info with album artwork for every episode. Plus, if you hit the contact button up top, you can email us right away and we will write you back. We love to hear from our, our listeners. Remember to write a positive review if you've got a free minute on Apple Podcasts. We're trying to get to that 5.0 perfect status. So, just oh so close. Uh, again, thank you so much. Hope you dug it. Hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Y'all be good now, because in jazz, we trust. <laughs>